Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, September 16th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the state Senate talks teacher pay raises. Then a maternal fetal physician on the threat of COVID to pregnant women. Plus, the state economist releases a new report on Medicaid expansion and a conversation with writer Alan Gelzo. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Reeves has promised teachers in the state a pay raise. Now it's up to lawmakers to find the money for it. Republican Senator Dennis DeBar attended a hearing on the matter yesterday. The Senate has been focused on increasing teacher pay, well, for the two years now. And what we've gleaned from the data that we've been provided is that there's maybe a needed restructuring of teacher pay to entice and encourage students to go into the education field to become teachers. Because what we see is teachers, as you heard today, you know, one to five years, they're leaving the field. And so do we need to restructure teacher salaries? How much is needed? And how do we get there? Where do we get the money from? And, and not only that, how much income or set money will a teacher have after all the deductions are taken out of their salary? We've heard insurance, you know, costs are the employee share is the highest of our surrounding states. You know, PERS contribution is 9%. And so all that plays a factor in the disposable income of a teacher. And uh, to raise a, a family of four off a teacher's salary is difficult as it is. So we're trying to figure out ways we can put more money in the teacher's pocket so they can take care of their family and, you know, not incur these massive expenses that are, are out there. The move towards a pay raise comes amidst a push within the legislature to eliminate the state income tax. For David Blunt, the two issues are inextricable. Blunt is a Senate Democrat who represents part of Hines County. The main point is that you can't eliminate the income tax, as some people have proposed, and raise teacher pay. We want to raise teacher pay. 
Uh, we want to improve uh, education in Mississippi. And the key to improving education in Mississippi, the most important thing, is a quality teacher in the classroom. And the way to make that happen is to raise teacher pay. You can't pay for that if you eliminate the income tax. So we want to do this, uh, and uh, we're studying the best way to implement it. The next state legislative session is slated to begin in early 2022. Coming up, what pregnant women need to know about COVID. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Health officials in the state say pregnant women are at especially high risk for severe COVID-19 infection. Seven women have died of COVID while pregnant in Mississippi just since July. Dr. William Grobman is the president of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine. I think the important thing for people to understand is that people in pregnancy are not only no less likely to be infected by COVID, but when pregnant people are infected by COVID, the consequences of that are that they are sicker than if they had been infected by COVID and not pregnant, for example, the same age, the same age that someone would be. So COVID infection in pregnancy is as frequent as it would be in any given community. When pregnant people get infected with COVID, they are sicker than age-matched uh, individuals, and, and then of course they have not just complications potentially from from the COVID infection itself, but then related complications in the pregnancy and, and to the baby. We know that there are certain people who are more vulnerable to complications: older people, obese people, someone with diabetes, or another condition. Would a pregnant woman be comparable, or is, or is there a separation between that group of people and a pregnant person? two ways to think about that question. Just like those other conditions that you spoke about, which are factors for worse outcomes with infection, pregnancy is just like that. So I would consider, and I would want people to think about it, that just by being pregnant, that is a risk factor for having worse outcomes related to having COVID. People who are pregnant, are they also at risk of losing their baby in utero? What I would want people to understand is that when people have COVID infection, you know, the the data that we have so far suggests that, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, not only that there's greater risk of complications related directly to the COVID infection, you know, respiratory compromise or failure, but that it is more likely that there are pregnancy complications as well, whether that be preterm birth, whether it be that the fetus is smaller, whether it be even that there is a, a stillbirth or a baby born so early that it can't live outside the uterus. All those things become more likely in the setting of someone who is, is sick with a COVID infection. I know there have been some instances of uh, a mother dying from COVID and the baby being delivered and the baby living. So the the mother isn't necessarily passing COVID on to the baby. Is that right? Yes. So so even when someone, whether or not the God forbid a person dies, 
whether regardless of that, much of the time that a person is sick with or has a COVID infection and a baby is delivered, regardless of that person's outcome, it is unlikely, it is possible, but not usual that the fetus and then the baby from, you know, has an infection from being in the uterus, right? Different from than a baby being born and getting COVID on the outside. But most of the time, it's, you know, estimated to be about one to 3% of the time that the pregnant person has COVID, that then the fetus, you know, gets it from within the pregnancy. So most of the time that does not happen. Uh, our state health officer, Dr. Thomas Dobbs, said that pregnant women who have died since the vaccine became available all have been unvaccinated. And it's possible yes. there is vaccine hesitancy among pregnant women. Can you uh, dispel some of the fears or myths about the vaccine and pregnant people? Yes, I. there's nothing as important as being vaccinated as soon as a person can be, preferably before pregnancy, but if, if they haven't had the chance before pregnancy, in pregnancy, to protect themselves and to protect their baby. The chance of bad outcomes for them, illness, dying, and if they are not doing well, their pregnancy is not doing well or less likely to do well, all those things are dramatically, dramatically, dramatically reduced by getting the vaccine. And, and there's absolutely no doubt, just like you referred to the situation in your state, that the people who are ending up in the hospital, the people who are dying, the people who have pregnancy complications are enormously disproportionately more likely to not have been vaccinated. The vaccine is protective. It is protective for the person. It is protective for their child. And there is absolutely no evidence that it causes any pregnancy complication, that it leads to infertility, that it leads to any adverse outcome in the baby. And it is exactly the opposite. It is a, prote it is a protective intervention a dramatically protective intervention. And so anyone who wants to do everything they can for themselves and their baby, whether they're thinking of becoming pregnant, pregnant, any time in pregnancy, should be looking to be vaccinated against COVID. So if you're in third trimester, you're okay to be vaccinated? Any trimester, it is irrelevant. There is no evidence that of a greater risk of any adverse outcome any way that the baby doesn't develop normally, any greater chance of miscarriage. There is evidence that none of those things are increased. And at the same time, evidence that people who don't get vaccinated themselves do dramatically worse than if they had been vaccinated in, in terms of their outcomes. You couldn't be more clear, but I'm still going to ask this. I know of people yeah. who are afraid to get the vaccination because of the side effects that may come as a result, which means, as I understand that the vaccine is working, things like being very tired, a headache, you know, other symptoms that might mimic what COVID itself feels like, even though it's short-lived. Should a pregnant person be concerned about that at all? The common side effects from the vaccine are just like you said, things like uh, fatigue, muscle aches. Those are short-lived and of absolutely no consequence to the health uh, or well-being of a person or, or their baby. 
And, you know, it's quite the opposite. What you really don't want to have is, is COVID infection, where, where, the, where when people get sick from COVID, the symptoms are way more long-lasting than the extremely short side effects of the vaccine. And whereas those side effects from the vaccine have no consequences, COVID itself has the possibility of dramatically bad consequences. And so if someone were just think, asking themselves a very simple question, what is riskier for me and my baby if I'm thinking about becoming more pregnant, getting the vaccine or getting COVID, it's not even, there's no comparison. Getting COVID and being vulnerable to having COVID, it, it's not even close. There isn't, there is, that is so much more dangerous than receiving the vaccine that it, 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 it should be a simple decision. There's one path that is safer than the other, and that is receiving the COVID vaccine. Dr. Bill Grobman is the president of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine. Thank you very much for the information. You're so welcome. Coming up, the State Economist releases a report on Medicaid expansion. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi is one of a dozen U.S. states yet to expand Medicaid. Conservative state leaders, including Governor Tate Reeves, say Mississippi simply can't afford to enroll lower middle class residents in the program. But a new report from state economist Corey Miller suggests otherwise. Mr. Miller speaks with Desiree Frazier. One of the reasons we, we and we've looked, our office has looked at the Medicaid expansion before, but it's been almost a, a decade ago since we did that. One of the reasons we looked at it, again, was because of what was included in the American Rescue Plan that was passed in March, which was the big stimulus bill. That includes an incentive for states that have not expanded Medicaid of a 5% increase in the matching rate for the first two years on traditional Medicaid. So that's that would we found that would be a significant source of savings for about two years, in total, just over six hundred million dollars. Our traditional Medicaid matching rate is around seventy-eight percent, I think, right now, somewhere around there. So this would be an additional five percentage points on top of that for two years. They would still pay on the expansion part, the ninety percent. Of, of those costs going forward, that, that the matching rate on traditional Medicaid is just for the uh, first two years. Um, so that was a significant source of savings we found. Um, we also wanted to look at the cost to the state and the savings. Uh, we think the cost to the state between 2022 and 2027 would be around $200 million a year. We think the savings from other areas would be also be around $200 million a year over that period, plus the savings from the uh, increase in the matching rate in the first two years on traditional Medicaid. The other thing we wanted to look at, the biggest portion of the savings appears to be on, this is around 75% or so, would come from 
the reductions in uncompensated care costs. We, we tried to make a conservative assumption on how much the state would save in uncompensated care costs of around 25%. So to really, I think that's the most critical variable to look at in, in terms of how much the save or cost the state is what, what will the state save in terms of uncompensated care costs. What else did you look at here? We looked at the, the economic impacts of Medicaid expansion, um, basically what, what is the result of all the additional federal money that would be spent on Medicaid in the state if the state were to expand. Probably the biggest economic impact would be the increase in jobs. We think that's around a little over 11,000 jobs a year. But the caveat with that is most of those jobs are in the healthcare sector, and the state already does not have enough workers in the healthcare sector, particularly physicians. So in order to, to get the full economic impact of that, we would have to find more healthcare workers, uh, either you know from training within the state or bringing in more workers from outside the state. In terms of the economy, we find that the state through a gross domestic product would increase between 700 and 800 million dollars a year, which is about uh, eight tenths of a percent of what our real GDP was in 2019, uh, which doesn't sound like a lot, but our, our growth rates have not exceeded one percent since the end of the Great Recession, so that would be a considerable improvement. Uh, we also looked at uh, population, and this is this is also related to the jobs. It would mostly come from increase in employment. So we would have to get the population increase. We would have to uh, get that employment increase as well. And we found that population would increase at most around 11,500 residents in a given year. And that would be about a four-tenths of a percent increase in our 2019 population. But again, since we had a slight decline in population over the last decade, that would be a considerable improvement. Corey Miller is Mississippi's state economist. Coming up, writer Alan Gelzo takes on Robert E. Lee. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Alan Gelzo's new book is called Robert E. Lee, A Life. That's a pretty self-explanatory title for a work that deals with the Confederate leader's tangled legacy. I don't have any hesitation in saying in the book that Robert E. Lee committed treason. Because if you take the Constitution's definition of treason with any kind of seriousness, that is exactly what he did. That will probably make some people very upset with me, but I can't avoid that. That is simply there. If there is a real meaning to the word treason, a real constitutional and legal meaning, then what Robert E. Lee did in 1861 uh, was exactly that. Why did he do it? I think in large measure because he was trying to protect a sense of his family's independence. And I think a lot of it had to do with the family estate of Arlington. Now, Arlington is what we now think of as Arlington National Cemetery. Well, that was originally the place where Robert E. Lee called home. 
it wasn't because he was a, a flaming pro-Southern, pro-Virginia Confederate. I mean, the man actually had not lived most of his life in Virginia. It, it been, with his army assignments, he'd actually spent more time, more concentrated time living in New York than he had in, in Virginia. This is very striking because Robert E. Lee is supposed to be the canonical Confederate. You read Lee, Lee's letters during the war. The man is constantly complaining about the Confederate government, about how it doesn't do its business right. It doesn't know what it's about. Its leaders are corrupt. And at the very end of the war, when he's going to Appomattox, he says to one of his staffers, this is how I knew it would end. I knew it was going to happen like this from the very start. He was revered by those under his command. He was so well-respected. And if I understand correctly, he was also respected by generals in the Union Army. Well, in, in the Union Army, there came a point in the middle of the war when many Union officers and many Union soldiers almost had come to believe that Robert E. Lee could not be defeated, that he was invincible. And this, of course, is what is repaid to him in loyalty by his own soldiers, because his soldiers understand that Robert E. Lee is not going to take them into battles that are going to needlessly cost their lives. They come to revere Lee. They revere him for his prudence, for his, his uh, strategic wisdom. They revere him for that sense of genteel dignity that he possessed. And that was a characteristic of the man that, that people, even in his West Point cadet days, remarked upon. He is the very personification of Victorian gentility. And that is what his soldiers look up to and respect in him, as well as his tactical and battle savvy. It's interesting that he is the icon of the Civil War, of the Confederacy. Jefferson Davis to some extent, but I think Robert E. Lee much more. And how many schools have been named after him, which have now been changed just last week yes. in Richmond, Virginia, they finally removed that huge statue of him on a horse, statues coming down and monuments to Robert E. Lee. After what you know about him, is it proper that those things be moved, not destroyed, but moved into a museum like settings or storage or what have you? Is that appropriate? And do people think about Lee correctly? I'm a Yankee from Yankee land. I imbibed the whole story, the Union story of the Civil War at my grandmother's knee, and she got it as a schoolgirl from Union veterans who would come to her school around the turn of the last century to talk about the Union cause. So I can't fathom why you, why you put up statues to people who committed treason. And, and I have the same problem with people who wave the Confederate flag. I mean, these were people, including Lee, who raised their hand against the Constitution that they'd sworn an oath to uphold. It's not helped by the fact that the cause that Lee and the other Confederates fought for was wrapped around a defense of human slavery and human trafficking. So why should the artifacts of that have ever been in any place but a museum? Alan Gelzo is the author of Robert E. Lee, A Life, being released on September 28th. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. 
Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.